0: This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery, and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back for another episode of Me, Myself and Disaster. The show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Today on the show, we're looking at a concept that effectively engages communities in responses to disasters. It's a model that's been tested in New Zealand during a recent earthquake and is now being adopted in other parts of the country. Andrew, who do we have on
1: the show today? Today on the show, Josh, we're joined by Dan Neely and Renee Corlett from the Wellington Region Emergency Management Office or Remo. Dan is the Manager, Community Resilience and Recovery, and Renee is the Emergency Management Advisor in the Community Resilience Team. They are part of a team that have been developing and iterating the Community Emergency Hubs concept across Wellington for the past 80 years, and demonstrated new thinking in the way we engage communities before, during and after disasters. We'll discuss how and why the hubs were established, how they work in the broader emergency management context, and discuss how Dan, Renee, and the team have worked hard to forge a new approach with tips for others looking at a significant cultural change. It's going to be a great show, so let's head over to Wellington and get started. Kia ora, Dan and Renee. Thanks for joining us on the show this week. How are you both?
2: Good. It's great to be here.
1: New Zealand has been doing really well in COVID-19 and we're still stuck in the midst of it here in Australia. But if I think back to this time last year, um, you'd never think that 12 months on, we'd be going through fires, floods, COVID-19, and even a few earthquakes in New Zealand lately. Do you think these cascading events have led to greater risk awareness in the community and perhaps people considering what steps they could take to be better prepared for a range of disaster events?
2: Yeah, that's a a good question that uh, we've been asking ourselves since we started reengaging with our communities, and we can probably answer that in in two different perspectives. First, we run an annual survey on preparedness to gauge what is and is not landing with our communities in terms of understanding and preparing for risks. Uh, We just completed this year's survey a couple of weeks ago, and and not surprisingly, more people have some of the classic emergency items like food and water stored at home. Um, That's certainly a win. An unintended result, however, of the strong government response seems to be that people have a higher expectation of what government and civil defense will be providing for after a large emergency event like an earthquake, as well as emergency warnings. And so in that sense, the strong government response and the really great outcomes we've had over COVID have raised the expectations by our communities for an event like an earthquake, where uh, in reality, the government won't be able to provide that same level of support. And so we've got a little bit of extra work now to do with our communities around that idea of resilience.
3: I guess it was a really interesting experience for me in that COVID did more in two days in terms of community personal preparedness than I had kind of been encouraging over the last month. All of a sudden, people were really, really interested in the things that we have kind of been talking about before. Um, It was great. I saw people click in a really personal way to what resilience is all about. I got emails during response from community members saying, hey, we remember when you talked about that preparedness stuff and and now we kind of understand what you were talking about. Um, It also demonstrated to me that the communities that were well-networked in a wide range of ways prior to the event, the ones that had not just taken on board the messaging that that we were kind of putting out, but had also implemented it for themselves, kind of hit the ground running and we're in a, in a much better position for it. So that was really interesting
0: as well. I think that's a really interesting point in that um, we know there's a lot of research that shows that risks have to be personalized before someone will obviously take action. So that's a great example of how that personalization of risk is really kicking people into thinking about what, what am I going to do next time there's a disaster? But you know, New Zealand for Andrew and I hold a very special part in our hearts. We we're over there early in, uh, in the year, catching up with your team and exploring around your, you know, your epic countryside and you have no snakes, which, which is a great thing, but you certainly have a few other natural hazards, which pose a, a range of risks in the Wellington area. And, and one of those is especially earthquakes. Uh, can you paint a picture for our listeners about the New Zealand disaster landscape and the types of events your teams respond to?
3: Basically, we have it all tsunami, earthquakes, flooding you name it, we have it, except the snakes, as you mentioned. Uh, geographically, we have some really active faults that were perched right on top of, as well as the subduction zone along the east coast. And we're even in ash range for a volcano. It's the perils of being a relatively new landmass, I guess. So you can imagine the hazard state that we kind of have to prepare people for.
2: We, we substitute snakes for shakes.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know which one I
1: prefer. So, if a major earthquake um, hit in Wellington, I'd imagine it would certainly cause some um, pretty significant disruption for quite some time. And through your organisation, you're changing the culture of emergency management. You've developed a framework that enables communities to become more involved in the response to disaster events, effectively building latent capacity across the region. Can you tell us more about the community emergency hub model and how it was started? Sure. So I think like most
2: ideas, it was a series of insights and experiments that occurred over time, which really culminated into the rebranding of what we had, which is civil defense centers, into this idea of community emergency hubs and this wider community resilience narrative. So going back probably 10 years ago as a sector, we were really pitching civil defense to our communities and volunteers. It's this kind of specialist skill that you needed um, and it would be required to lead your community response in kind of the same way a controller does. And it's funny to think back, like we were in, you know, 10 years ago that we were pitching in that sense. Um, when in reality, when you look at just about any community response around the world, it's it's really nothing like a command and control structure. It's, it's more of a collective non-hierarchical response structure where no single one person is is in charge. Right. Um, but people do come together and begin solving problems and working together toward shared goals in the same way that, And or bees do right, and we see that time time again in large responses. So about ten years ago, as a sector, we were setting these false expectations, I think, in some respects, and not really providing the right framework to enable that unstructured collective response to occur pre-event or really be able to link to it during an event. And in New Zealand, we really experienced that disconnect between the unofficial and official response during the Christchurch earthquakes. Across the country, civil defense was really providing a small group of people a high level of training for roles that they weren't really ever going to be performing. Um, In many ways, I think that makes sense because the majority of people involved in civil defense come from the specialist background where there's a high level of training. And that training is really important, such as fire, army or response teams. But the reality is most members of the community aren't really that interested in that level of training and nor is it required and nor do they have the time. So what we did is we really looked at that evidence base. We stripped back the level of training required and started pitching it to a much wider audience. And over time, um, we really started winding back more and more of our volunteer program to the point where we did away with that formal volunteer structure a few years ago we really began to realize the best impact is not for that high level of training for a small group, but really a low level of training for a much bigger group of people so that we can help reframe their expectations um, in a way that really enables them and helps them understand that they, they have a lot to offer and a way to channel that, um, that energy when it's required during a response. So our thinking was that human beings are pretty good at problem solving every single day, um, all of us encounter minor emergencies all the time that we figure out how to deal with them. And disasters really are just on a bigger scale. They're just problems that need to get solved, right? They're just jobs that need to get done. And so the evidence based around the world tells us that people use that natural problem solving ability. Um, and it's often supported by the level of social capital that we have. And I think that's something that is really that, that importance has really come to the surface in the last few years. Um, and so they're really good at solving those issues that are right in front of them. The challenge and the opportunity that we saw was to figure out how we can help our communities do that more effectively and more efficiently in the response. And we realized it had less to do with the training of individuals and more with helping people connect um, with people who can offer assistance and people who need that assistance as efficiently as possible. The, probably the most effective way we saw to enable this was to have a commonly identified gathering point in each of our suburbs for people to come together and we we really did that in the form of using our old civil defense centers which had been around since the 1950s right so it's an old concept that's been around for a long time those civil defense centers were signposted in all of our suburbs and many people knew where they were but they didn't have really much of an idea of why they were there or for what purpose they were there and most people just thought that basically after disaster i go there and all my needs will be met by some abstract government entity called civil defense um, when in reality that was that was never going to happen Um, And so there's no real rich history that we can draw upon in the civil defense concept that we can actually really access. But we think what we've kind of done is really just reinvent this old idea of having a gathering place for communities to come together to look after each other after emergency and just kind of going back to this as an era in the 1950s before that big government official response structure was in place. And so what we did is we really consciously rebranded the civil defense term to reflect wording that was more about an empowered community response. And so after a whole bunch of end user testing on the types of names that landed with communities that kind of really reflected that concept, uh, we decided on the term community emergency hub because it's for community, it's for emergency, and the feedback around hub versus something like center was hub felt more informal. And that's what we really wanted it to convey. So um, what the model really lacked though was a framework to enable the community to do that organization and the response again more effectively and more efficiently, and, and how the official emergency response could also connect to it and support it.
0: I think that's a really interesting point. I think it's a conversation that Andrew and I have had a lot. And I know a lot of a lot of people globally are around the world are having this conversation around. With that professionalisation of emergency services, we often see a distancing of responsibility from the community, and I think it's a great way around. How do we actually bridge that gap, and how do we how do we partner with communities around sharing that responsibility? Because everyone, like you say, everyone's um, solving problems every day. How can we actually come together and do that as a, as a group and as a partnership? I really really like that. And so so let's delve a little bit deeper. So let's say. A major earthquake in Wellington happens uh, tomorrow. H- how would it work? How do you stand um, these uh, community emergency hubs up? And, you, you know, do you have defined roles? How, how does the hub work? I, I know in pre- pre- previous conversations we've talked about how, um, you know, you try and model the SIMS um, model, which is your incident management uh, framework uh, in New Zealand. Can you just step us through that process and paint a bit of a picture of what that startup phase of a community emergency hub would look like?
2: Maybe starting with, if it it occurred, um, the structure of the hubs, if a major earthquake occurred tomorrow, um, I guess first thing to point out is all of our hubs are publicly identified. So we work with all of the, I think it's about 129 hubs that we have across the Wellington region. Um, We work with all the owners pre-event to ensure that those expectations are in alignment, that the public can go into these buildings and begin uh, coordinating and organizing their response. After a large earthquake, we can expect that there will be no telecoms. There won't be any power, or water, and there'll be a lot of damage infrastructure. Which is why it's so important that the public is able to connect with each other quickly and begin looking after one another using those resources that they have. Uh, the hub guide, which is which is unique to each of those communities, has identified assets and vulnerabilities and a range of ideas on how common challenges can be solved, like uh, looking after, uh, checking on everybody in the community. Uh, Performing basic medical, providing accommodation, providing food and water, right? Those are all common challenges in any big event, and the process that we lead our communities through um, helps identify that from an asset, basically an asset model that we can talk about a little bit later.
3: So, in terms of the roles, we have eight roles in the hub. This is loosely taken inspiration from Sims, but rather than a structure, it's more the idea of what somebody could do. And we emphasize that this is a really collaborative approach rather than someone coming in and taking charge and you have this role and you have this role and I'm the boss now. um, It's more about divvy up by talking to each other, deciding whose experience would be the best fit. And most importantly, once somebody has a role, it doesn't tie that to them for the whole response they can swap, they can change out. Whatever suits their needs, they might start off as being in the community space and might get a bit much, so they might move to something like a facilities manager. So the roles we have are hub supervisor, which is kind of a a leadership role, but again, it's not really telling people what to do. It's more organising. We have communication, which is often working on the radio. So each of the hubs have a radio inside them with a radio guide. Um, Information coordination is working on getting that kind of community intel together, deciding on what ties into the official response, what needs to be put out to the wider public, a community space, which really takes over that kind of welfare um, needs and offers, which is a really interesting thing to think about as well, is that matching those community needs with the offers that that they have, because we know that in the community, just because there's a disaster, doesn't mean that people completely lose the Mm. ability to kind of function with the roles that they would do anyway. So you might have someone who has a chainsaw. Someone down the street has a tree over their driveway. You put the two of them together, you coordinate those roles, and you've got the solution to your problem. Mm. So looking at those really on a grassroots level, like Dan mentioned, kind of basic community, solving each other's community problems.
2: And and one of the things that we've helped enable that is Um, where, you know, know, as you would know, in an EOC, everybody wears a vest that says, you know, whatever function they they have. What we've done is we've developed little lanyards. Like, you know, when you go to a a conference and it's a little lanyard with a big thing, we've kind of taken that idea and we put the job description in very plain English right on the lanyard. And so people can kind of see, oh, that's, you know, if it says uh, my job is hub supervisor or working in needs and offers, then the job description is really there at a high level. It comes back to people are pretty. You know, we, we we take the approach that human beings are capable, and if you give them just a little bit of guidance, they're good problem solvers. And I attended one of the hub drills that Renee did a while back, and it was and it was amazing. You ran it, and it's just you had all kinds of members of the community. People were picking it up and and just running with it.
1: With the the different roles that you have in the team, are there concerns raised at all about, um, well, this person's not qualified, he's a chainsaw, or what about the safety, or what if they do something wrong, or what if they're a criminal, those sort of things, like are there – have you had any feedback or people sort of question ar- around the, the risk? And um, I know uh, in Australia, spontaneous volunteers is often seen a bit of a risk because it's like, oh, well, we don't know who, where they're from and their background. Are they good people? We just don't know that sort of thing. How do you find um, working with people and members of the community who don't have criminal record checks, who don't have sort of um, a qualification and a history with the organisation to so say, yes, you can use a chainsaw if we've verified that that's okay. Do you have um, any sort of, I guess, process in place to make sure that risk is... Um, is minimized, or is that not something that you see as a huge risk?
2: Yeah, that, that was something that it, it, we we really uh, explored and, and tried to parse out when we first go and got into this concept, and then we realized actually it's a lot simpler than we were we were overcomplicating it. Um, the community response always occurs in big events, right? Just because it doesn't, just because it's not in our bubble, doesn't mean it's not happening out there. And so people are always picking up chainsaws and cutting down trees and moving branches and you know, engaging in health and safety issues that are, that are, that are of an issue. Um, whether we are controlling that or not is actually beside the point. And so one of the things that we've really tried to do is draw a distinction with our hubs that our hubs are not an official part of our response. What we've done is we've kind of helped build a framework in our communities for our communities to respond more effectively and more efficiently using their resources, but we're not in charge of what happens out there. So consequently, um, we're not on the hook or if a community member decides to pick up a chainsaw and cut down a tree branch, um, they've not been directed to do that out of the EOC or out of the Emergency Coordination Center or Operations Center. So they haven't been directed. Consequently, they're not part of that official system. Those volunteers are spontaneous volunteers in their communities that have always done what they're gonna do anyway, What we've done is just create a model for them to come together and help identify those kind of needs and offers a bit more efficiently and effectively.
0: And I think that's the thing we've got to remember is that, you know, Bob is using a chainsaw every day on his farm. You know, what does a qualification say that Bob hasn't got through years and years of experience? I think that's sometimes, um, in this space, we have to remember that communities have capability. They're using this in their everyday life and we need to honor that. We need to respect that. And we need to think about how we actually apply that to the problems we're trying to solve.
1: It's a common sense approach. I think it's just the people are already doing it. So
0: let's continue to do it and support that. Exactly. So for the hubs, um, They were activated through the Kaikoura earthquakes and more recently, uh, I know Dan, you were saying that they've been activated down in the South Southland uh, flooding. Uh, Can you take us through how the hubs were used operationally in those scenarios?
2: Sure. So uh, I guess we just launched the hub concept right when Kaikoura, the Kaikoura earthquake occurred. Um, We did have two hubs that activated for that and that was driven by the community, um, one of them, and, and was, right after Kaikoura, we had massive uh, floods. It was kind of one of those scenarios that you'd write on paper and no one would ever believe it would happen, um, and then it totally happened. And so they actually the, the, the hubs activated not so much for the earthquake, but for the flooding that was occurring. Mm. Um, and those are relatively small-scale activations. Um, it worked, they worked in conjunction with their councils, and, and, and that partnership played out really well, just like we had, we had hoped it would Um More to the point, though, this year, um, the hub model has been adopted in different parts of New Zealand as a result of some of the work that we've been been doing with some of our counterparts and in an area called Southland, which is in the very south of the country, as you might guess. Um, They adopted the hub model uh, a couple of years ago and experienced a massive flood um, across the whole of the region, and they had more than 20 of their hubs self-activate, and it was really the first time um, that that model had been tested where um their hubs self-activated. Um it was community members coming in, basically running the whole thing, looking after their own community and then connecting into um, the emergency operations center and kind of helping helping the EOC understand what was going to place on the ground, what support that was needed. Um, we understand it went really, really well. Um, I, it's one of those things I meant to follow up on and get more details and then right after that, then you know the world went upside down with COVID. So I can't speak to too many more details other than the reports that we got at the time were really, really positive. And I know there's you know, been a couple great pictures of community members with lanyards around their neck um, and it's, you know, they're they're front and centering their own community response. That's just one of those things you go, yeah, sweet. It, you know, the concept does work. Um, you trust our, your community members um, to do the right thing and people will problem solve and do the right thing nine times out of 10. And, you know, it's, it just reinforces. Sometimes I think in our sector, we obsess a little bit about the one out of 10 more than we need to really uh, celebrate the nine times out of 10 where, you know, the community members are going to do amazing stuff. For sure. And I
0: think that was the thing that really got Andrew and I interested um, from a community development point of view uh, when we heard Ainsley speaking um, in Gold Coast at a conference and Dan, the conversations that we've had with you um, is really around that that concept that it's the community's decision to start the hub up. It's not an emergency service coming in and saying, you will do this and you will do that. It's really about, it's it's true harnessing of community capability and really driving you know the decision-making process back down to the community. And, I, and the thing I really like that about that is every time I know for myself in the field that I've seen that we've driven the, the decision-making by the community, they own it. And when they own it, they drive it. And when they drive it, they want to make it successful. So I love that comment.
1: What does training and exercising look like for the hub model? And how do you get members of the community involved? Do you think engagement is due to a high awareness of the risk that they live in? Or do you have any other tips for engaging the community in preparation for, say, a future disaster event?
3: Um, So we run community earthquake drills at our hubs on a rotating basis. So that's roughly, roughly kind of every 18 months per hub. So before a drill, we focus heavily on a session zero approach. So this involves making the best use of our community connections and our community champions. So they're kind of people out there who are passionate and motivated already and want to contribute, and they really take ownership for the planning process and as I said, I stress on the day that it's their hub, their community, which really brings home while well their involvement right from the beginning is so crucial. So how to keep people along? That's a really great question. Um, often the best networks we have are the networks of others. So others who people know and they respect. So these relationships take time to really establish. But if you're collaborating with people who are already in that space, then you have kind of a shared energy that You can draw from to make the
0: event a success. I'm really interested to understand. Um, obviously, we're talking a lot about how we engage communities and how we have those conversations. But how are these community emergency hubs harnessing community resources and assets? And what I'm really probably getting at here is, I really get the feeling like you know IAP two in Aust- uh, in Australia and across the Pacific talk about um, asset mapping and how we can you know harness that and and map these type of um, capabilities and assets in the community how does the community emergency hubs play a role for you guys in that space? And and what are the benefits, um, for your teams around mapping those assets in communities
2: to to engage in the community? We do, we do a whole, as, as Renee was just talking about, right? We do a whole lot of work in the pre event space uh, what we call session zero, where it is a lot of just relationship building, um, connecting of relationships, uh, building on existing work that other NGOs might be doing or community groups might be doing. Um, and, and what we have really done and we really, as a team, I think it's important to emphasize, we really see ourselves as a community development team that works in the emergency management space, first and foremost. And so we really try to apply as many good community development uh, practices and methodologies in that space, mainly asset-based community development models um, for the community emergency hub approach. Um, and that's, if you're not, you know, if your listeners aren't familiar with that, we often, you know, we often go into a, a problem solving area going, what is, what do we need to solve this problem as opposed to what do we already have to solve this problem? Right. And so that's, that in essence is your asset based community development approaches. You look at the assets that you already have um, to, to, you know, solve any sort of challenges or opportunities ahead of us. And that was an approach I learned as a Peace Corps volunteer years ago in Central America, that basically even the poorest communities, um, have assets that they can draw upon every single day, in times of stress. And those can be physical or, or social assets. And so, um, when we we kind of work through this model, we we've, we've had a lot of iterations of it, um, and we we really started building on the process where we start off by asking our community what they value, um, and we ask you know some people get an allergic reaction because they they come to these emergency planning. Sessions go like, I'm here to do emergency response, right? And we go, you know, we start off going, okay, great. What is it that you guys value about your community? And like I said, they they get a little some some people are totally on board with it. Some people are a little bit confused, but when we lead them through that process and we ask them, what is it that you love about your community? What enables that that you love about your community? And they start capturing these ideas, you see the penny drop for people pretty quickly. That that's actually why we're here. It's not to respond in the abstract sense is to protect the people and the things and the places that we love dearly and we hold valuable to why we live in this, in this community. And then what we always do is we quickly turn that into a word cloud so people can visually see what their community is and why it matters. Once that mapping is done then we present them with some targeted questions on, uh, basically what are the assets in their community? And they, and there's a few frames for that around, Places and spaces, um, groups of people, etc. And they and they they put little stickers on a giant map, and they and they identify all those assets. Then we flip that and we say, what are the vulnerabilities in your community? What are the roads that often get washed out, or um, what are some groups of people like retirement homes that after a large event you want to check on those folks pretty quickly? So we have them map the vulnerabilities, and then finally we have them run through some scenarios. Um, Because that's kind of the what's right. What are the assets? What are the vulnerabilities? Then we go into the how's and using those assets that they've identified, we run them through a series of how would you um, look after everybody in your community without any sort of government support? How would you provide medical assistance without any government support? How would you provide accommodation, food, water without any government support, fire, no police, no government, etc. And that initial response is, oh, we can't do that. But then when they look at all those assets, you start seeing the ideas just pour out. And, and that's and that's the section um, in the Hub Guide that we capture, which becomes a bit of a framework of how they might do that. Um, but it's not a direct plan. It's just a series of ideas. I don't know if, Renee, you want to speak to that? Yeah, a little bit sure. More.
3: So I think particularly with this COVID response, there was quite a good example of that. And the fact that asset mapping is such a living document for the community so the communities that i saw that had really put in that work beforehand and had a really good idea of what their assets were they were the ones that that did particularly well in this response because they knew oh actually maybe we should set up a phone tree and here's the here's the way that we're going to do it because they kind of thought of it beforehand and this same group has now come back to me and are working on updating their assets because they've said, hey, we learned a whole lot of things from, from COVID. And uh, can you add this into our asset mapping guide and then update it in the hub guide? So that's what I'm working on at the moment with them. So it's, it's a document that just keeps growing. And the more we learn from different responses and different events, the, the kind of more we can expand on it.
2: I'll just, I'll just add, because I, I, I mean, that's that has just been so valuable for communities to really understand again just reinforce that there is more in their community. They are more capable, but it's also been really valuable from within the official response with the EOC, because now we have 129 of these community driven asset models right across the region um, that we can then link up to in an event as a go-to point that, you know, it allows us an immediate connection to that community to understand what kind of support they might need and how we can better uh, enable that.
3: Yeah. And they're online and publicly available as well. So it's not, it's not a, a secret that's hidden away in, a, in an EIC cupboard. They're, they're online. Anyone can access them at any time, regardless of what area they come from and you know, get a pretty good idea of, of what the assets and the vulnerabilities are of that specific community.
0: And I think it's such a, such a valuable technique and I'm really hoping our listeners are engaging and listening to this because there is some great tips in there around how they can replicate this in their own communities. But what I'd be really interested to understand from you guys, I know when Andrew and I were there uh, earlier in the year, it feels like a lifetime now with COVID, but um, there was a really um, big push around how can we be inclusive um, and especially around that cultural space. And I'd be really interested to hear from you guys how do you work with the Maori community and and utilising indigenous knowledge in your decision making around disaster events? Have um has there been some thought about how you can incorporate that um that knowledge into a community emergency hubs?
2: Sure. So so you know that's a big question. In some ways, I think we we've, we've worked with our local Modi and iwi uh, for years, and have had some pretty meaningful partnerships along the way. Um, but to be honest, I think we have quite a ways to go and. We have not worked in partnership as as effectively as we could have done. And and over the last couple of years, we've brought, uh, for starters, two local Modi leaders onto our governance group, which is called the Coordinating Executive Group, which consists of our local council chief executives, Health and Emergency Services, to provide that overarching strategic direction and guidance. Um, Those local leaders actually joined us in the Emergency Coordination Center throughout the entire COVID response and it was just amazing to have their perspective at the table and the ability to work uh, through them using their established relationships and the mana that they carried. Um, at the community level, we have started meeting with Modi across the region to explore how Modi and, and Marai, and, and for your listeners who are not familiar, Marai is, I guess in a simple way to describe it, would be a culturally significant gathering place for a geographic area. And it's much more than that, to be honest. It's, a, it's really just such a rich cultural asset that serves really important function every day in those communities. Um, but we're working with Modi to better understand how the official response can link up with Mariah from either, um, either the community hub model or that official response. And we're really looking to their own knowledge to help guide that conversation. Yeah,
3: Maori or the Maori world view is really people centric um, really really focused on relationships and it's the relationships that you have before anything happens that are the most important um, so that's part of what I do is go out into the community to to build those relationships when things aren't happening so that when things do happen you can kind of connect there and it's about going and instead of coming in and saying you know you know what can we what can you give us, you know, we're coming in and saying, how can we support you with what you already have with your, your kind of tikanga, your way of doing things? Um, how can we support your world view of natural disasters and your relationship with the land? How can we support that and tie that into the official response in a, in a really meaningful and, again, emphasising relationship-based partnership uh, rather than transactional. Um, that's really important of what we, what we avoid um, in our partnership. It has to be partnership rather than, than transactional.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting to understand how, um, how New Zealand is really working with the Māori people and, and really making that, uh, really involving them in the disaster preparedness and, and response. So it's been really interesting to see um, you guys take Wellington region on a journey away um, from a rural command and control structure to empower communities in their own disaster resilience. And I'm keen to understand what barriers you faced in terms of that cultural change um, and perhaps any sort of tips or strategies for others who are looking at making a similar sort of cultural change in other parts of the world.
2: Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, it's It's been a significant cultural change, to be honest, over the last 10 years. I guess I'd start off first that it's not an either or commander control or community response. It's, it really is a synergy of how those two approaches work together, because you do need that command control within the official response. Um, that needs to align with the reality of what happens in communities, which is not a command control, but, you know, more of a, a sw- you know, kind of talking about earlier, right? That almost like swarm leadership approach. Um, and so, the Christchurch earthquake I think was a really big shift for us as a sector across the country because in many ways that community response was more effective than the official one and it gave validity to the community capacity and capability that really wasn't there pre-Christchurch. And it punched some holes in the established kind of emergency management quote unquote truths in a way that gave an opening for a change in that, in that conversation and in, in that, in that world view. Some people were hesitant about the change, which is to be expected with any change. But, but overall, I think our leaders and communities have been pretty supportive of it. Kiwis are practical people. And I think that that concept just kind of makes sense. Right. And it just it landed with a lot of people. So that journey, we're still on that journey. Um, I think the biggest question is, how do we train the people that work in an EOC and in our communities, how do we train to have that official command and control structure that supports um, the unofficial collective community response? And that's probably, that's probably the biggest piece for us in that, in that area that we still are, are navigating, to be honest. I guess I'd wanna stress that this didn't happen overnight for us. We, we actually landed on the Community Emergency Hub Guide and that concept after a lot of trial and error to find out what that sweet spot was from a community engagement point of view. And I think one of the most important things that our team has done is really try to understand the end user perspective and the evidence that has occurred from around the world. That's an area that I probably can't stress enough is, is the end user perspective. Um, So one of the things that we've certainly learned over, over some time is that we recognize that our communities are busy. Uh, Personally, I've got two little kids and a full-time job and grass that needs mowing and meals that need to be cooked and emails that need to be responding to. And I'm busy just like I know everybody else is. And so how, I guess knowing that, how do we build an engagement model that accounts for the busyness that people have out there and and capture just enough of people's attention um, across the whole of society and And those are the questions. It's like how do we build a model that aligns with what the evidence is from the community response tells us on the ground as opposed to maybe what we quote unquote kind of think is occurring based on our own professional or personal biases? and so Um, I certainly believe that that area of community resilience is a field of emergency management. is probably going to have more and more growth in the future, and um, there's certainly a lot of innovation opportunities in front of us.
1: I think it's a journey that everyone's going to go on at some point, And I think you guys are leading the way. So it's, it's amazing to see. And for listeners, um, Dan just referenced uh, the Christchurch earthquake.
0: If anyone is uh, interested in hearing any more, any more on that and the local response, um, Ants Rohan in episode one um, took us through the student volunteer army um, and how that unfolded and the community response there. Um, so you can always go back and listen to that um, if you'd like to know more. And it's certainly an interesting time to be involved um, in this disaster prepared a space but what I'd like to do just to, to wrap it up I'd like to come back and Renee and Dan how did you end up in this space for for myself and Andrew engineers who kind of fell into the disaster um, risk reduction space um, and I've only woken up in the last couple of years to figure out where we are but I'd be interested to understand for you two how did you end up in this space and Dan our listeners are probably trying to understand why is there an American accent in New Zealand
2: um, Renee you go first
3: <laughs> sure So this past year has been a really different journey for me. Um, I taught English as a second language for 11 years. I started doing emergency management for the school I was at when I realised, and part of that was Christ after Christchurch as well, being in Wellington. We had 200 international students and absolutely no plan for what to do with them in the middle of the CBD in the most probably the most vulnerable spot in the city if something happened. Um, So I saw a need and I started getting involved and really enjoyed working in that space. And then one day I, I made an appointment at Remo and I went and saw this guy called Dan and this guy called Scott and I said, hey, I want to come and work for you guys. How does how does that happen? And they gave me a whole bunch of really good advice and one of them was go and get some experience <laughs> being an English language teacher. That was really important advice. Um, and I went away and I, and I did that. I was involved in some responses. And that was through volunteering with a working with animal rescue and disaster. Um, And then two years later, a position came up in my hometown. And so I went back and said, I applied for the position and turned up and saw them again and said, me, I'm back and I've got some experience. I would still love to work for you guys. And so that's how an English teacher became an emergency management advisor. And then COVID happened in my first year. (laughs)
2: Um, yeah, so, so I always wanted to get into community development and kept trying to get in community development jobs, became a, um, found myself working in the Peace Corps 20 years ago in Hurricane Mitch in Honduras. Uh, I was the third most deadliest hurricane ever and found myself uh, landing into that, uh, right in the midst of that, uh, early recovery and, uh, just kept trying to get into community development jobs and kept finding myself landing in disaster related jobs, emigrated to New Zealand, uh, 14 years ago because I heard it was such an amazing quality of life and true story it it is it's just (laughs) the greatest place on earth Um, was working in community housing and then a job came up in the emergency management space where they said they wanted to have a greater emphasis on on community and and it spoke to me and I've been here ever since and just uh, yeah I work with the coolest group of people doing the coolest work in the world.
1: It's, yeah, every every guest we've had on the show so far um, has said, oh, I had this wonderful sort of idea. I wanted to be an investment banker or an engineer or a scientist or whatever else I wanted to be, and now I'm in emergency management. No one sort of left high school thinking, I'm going to be in emergency management for the rest of my career, and yet here we all are. So it's, it's great to hear different stories about how people came to, to be involved. It's been a really fascinating discussion, and we've learned so much from you guys today. We'll have more information about Remo on our blog at disasterbros.com, along with some photos of the community emergency hubs in action and josh and i are so keen to come along to one of your exercises in the future and head back to new zealand at some point soon but thanks so much for joining us dan and on the show and i hope to see you guys soon
3: great. awesome thanks for having us thank
2: you very much jones it's been great conversation really appreciate the work you're doing as well helping promote these kind of conversations
0: andrew let's pack our bags i want to go back to new zealand already What I found interesting from that discussion was really about how community emergency hubs are mapping assets in communities and really valuing the contribution and the skill sets that communities have to problem solve.
1: Yeah, Josh, I think what I found interesting was um, when Dan mentioned that the concept of volunteering, like a formal volunteering process, wasn't working. That wasn't the new model for them, they tried it before, and New Zealand needed something different. And that's why the Hub model was developed, and it's working so well, bringing in community members who have the skills, have the assets, have that experience, and putting them into action and helping them coordinate what they normally do already. I think that's a really great approach.
0: Yeah, I agree, Andrew. And that's all we have time for on today's show. Join us again next time as we talk to more guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com.